Hey folks, welcome back to Travel and Trivia, a podcast for curious travelers eager to embark on their next adventure. Before we get into today's episode, I do have some general housekeeping items. As most of you know, Chloe and I will be on vacation next week. That being said, we're quite busy wrapping up things around the house and I don't anticipate us releasing an episode next week. But no worries, we'll be back refreshed and better than ever. At least we hope so. Seattle. The Emerald City. You know I love a good city nickname, but this one is pretty self-explanatory. And no, it doesn't have to do with the Wizard of Oz. Seattle is home to an abundance of lush greenery that stays around all year. A pretty fitting nickname for a city in the evergreen state. While we'll certainly touch on coffee and rain in this week's episode, we'll also attempt to dive deeper into the city's history and all those special quirks that make Seattle, well, Seattle. A reminder, there will be just over 30 seconds to answer each question, so if you're impatient like me, feel free to skip ahead. Without further ado, let the round begin. Question 1. What iconic Seattle skyline structure was originally sketched on the placemat of a coffeehouse in 1959 by artist Edward E. Carlson? And the answer is the Space Needle. Carlson had been inspired by Stuttgart Tower in Germany and was looking for a structure to dominate the skyline of the 1962 Seattle World's Fair. In December of 1961, the Space Needle would receive its final coats of Astronaut White, Orbital Olive, Reentry Red, and Galaxy Gold. Four short months later, the tower would open on the first day of the 1962 World's Fair. Question 2. Which of the following Seattle fish markets is famous for giving the daily catch a healthy toss before packaging and shipping the fresh seafood across the country? Is it A, Lamb Seafood Market, B, Pike Place Fish Market, C, Seattle Fish Guys, or D, City Fish Company? And the answer is B, Pike Place Fish Market. Although I'm sure if you ask nicely, those other markets would be happy to toss a fish at you. The rubber-clad workers of Pike Place have become a tourist attraction all their own, drawing over 10,000 visitors a day. Question 3. After the tragedy of George Floyd's death, concerns surrounding police brutality swept across the nation. While those tragic events took place thousands of miles away in Minneapolis, the shockwave traveled all the way to Seattle. What was the four-letter acronym given to an area of Seattle taken over by protesters and occupied for 24 days while its members demanded Seattle's police budget be cut and other major political reformations be made? 
And the answer is CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHOP, the Capitol Hill Organized Protest. Those involved with actions within CHAZ said the first week or so was largely peaceful and successful in bringing together humans of various backgrounds under a united goal. Unfortunately, the peace would end with several shootings before police would eventually break up the area and regain occupation. Question 4. According to a 2022 study, around 74% of Americans drink coffee daily. Needless to say, coffee is big business. What now worldwide coffee company got its start on the cobblestone streets of Seattle's historic Pike Place Market? And the answer is Starbucks. In 1971, Starbucks opened its first store, offering fresh roasted coffee beans, teas, and various spices to its customers. According to the Starbucks website, the now-famous name originated from the novel Moby Dick as the first mate's name was Starbuck. At the end of 2022, Starbucks has nearly 36,000 locations, serving customers in 84 countries around the world. Question 5. What towering natural beauty dominates the southeastern horizon of the greater Seattle-Tacoma metropolitan area? And the answer is Mount Rainier. According to several sources, this massive stratovolcano is often referred to by locals simply as the mountain. While Mount Rainier certainly isn't the tallest mountain in the world, when you look at topographical prominence, or simply put, how tall that thing looks compared to the ground around it, Mount Rainier has more of it than K2, the second tallest mountain in the world. If you're interested in visiting the mountain for yourself, plan on setting aside a few days in July or August. These months will be warmer and have the highest likelihood of clear skies. You'll also be treated to wildflowers in full bloom within the subalpine meadows. Question 6. The city of Seattle has been at the forefront of many cultural and social movements. In fact, Seattle was the first major city in the United States to have a woman mayor. Which of the following women was elected and served a single two-year term in 1926? Was it A. Bertha Knight Landis? B. Emily Jones, C. Amanda Bennett Smith, or D. Bernice Pitts. And the answer is Bertha Knight Landis. 
Bertha moved to Seattle in 1895, where she was quickly appointed to University of Washington faculty. She went on to found the Women's City Club and served as president of the Washington State League for Women Voters. In 1922, she became the first woman alongside Catherine Miracle to serve on the Seattle City Council. After serving her term as mayor of Seattle, she had this to say about the future of women in politics. Women now wield considerable power along political lines, and I believe each succeeding year, for some time to come, will find them welding that power more effectively. But, at present, men in general are not ready to yield to women the privilege and right of holding high political office. I've been trying to think of a segue to get onto this topic. Let's see, Seattle, serial killers, raining, um, anything like that. I got nothing. We're just going to have to jump right into it. This happened just this morning. By the way, welcome to the seventh question stretch. Seattle edition with a slight rant at the beginning by yours truly. Chloe and I are driving down the road. I'm dropping her off at work. That's kind of our like schedule. It's cool. We like get to hang out for a second and talk about the day, everything like that. Whatever. Drive by this. It's a trash can, right? I mean, it's like a, it's just like a blue trash can, but it's so full that you can see like what's in the top and the lid is now kind of like up a bit. You can imagine very full trash can and what's on top. We have a discussion on what it is. We came to the determination that it is a futon mattress. One of those awful, horrendous futon mattresses. You know, they're so thin. So it inspired me, Chloe. It inspired me to go on this rant and to put a petition forth to rid the world of futons, especially in the college uh, realm the lifestyle. William Brower brought the idea to America from Japan in the 1980s. Now I looked up pictures and they're like, they've been using like futon type bedding over there for a while, but most of the time it looks like it's on the floor. So you at least have something. When he brought it over, it became like this cool kind of like edgy, modern, whatever. But today's futons, for the most part, I'm sure somebody's going to say there's a wonderful futon out there, are neither a great couch or a bed. They are arguably horrible at both. Do you remember, do you remember my college futon? Terrible. I'd say it was like sleeping on a rock, but that would be unfair to rocks because at least sometimes they're like pretty flat. The frame, you could just feel the metal through it. And let's just start, let's start a movement. Let's rid college dorm rooms of futons and let's settle for a mini couch. Love seat. Yeah, it would be annoying to carry up the stairs, but I've taken some wonderful naps on a love seat. Perhaps a sofa sleeper. So you have the uh, ability to pull it out as into a bed for your company because sleeping on a futon, horrendous. Maybe, maybe even, maybe a cot, maybe, uh, maybe a pile of nails, maybe some hot coals, literally anything else. Chloe, uh, go ahead and expand, expand on that. Are you good? I'm I'm not. <laughs> oh my goodness. I had a thing in college, that weird little Ottoman thing. Hey. Don't even say that was good. No. I slept on that thing. Not good. Let's be dramatic. I'm just saying it was an, it could be another option where it pulls out into the little bed. Ottomans should be Ottomans. Beds should be beds. Couches should be couches. Hybrids that suck at both should not be a thing. Anyway, Chloe, I know you've been itching to talk about this. Grey's Anatomy. Why do you hate it so much? I'll tell you why. And I, I may have ranted about this before on the podcast or just to you in general. At the beginning, it seems kind of reasonable. You're like, okay, uh, some new doctors going through what they go through, uh, the trials and tribulations of it. Ooh, some young love. Mm, some like gunshot wounds coming into the hospital. Sure, it happens. Big metropolitan area. When you got to do an emergency tracheotomy while you're sitting in a cafe because every other person is choking to death, we in real life anymore. 
it just loses its luster so quick. Or like, what was that one where the like a boat exploded and she fell into the harbor? Like some, it just doesn't happen. And yeah, you just eat it up. Like the rest of people eat it up. Why? I don't know. I still like it. You need to stop making like shows. Like as soon as something becomes unrealistic, Seth is just not interested anymore, which is like most shows. So like, I don't know why you're so hateful towards Grey's Anatomy. But anyway, Grey's Anatomy was my comfort show going through college and grad school. So there's that. <laughs> now, Chloe, since we haven't been to Seattle, I went ahead and looked up some like some interesting facts to kind of get us excited because we do plan on going a heck of a lot of places. One thing that I found, and I'm wondering if this is a coincidence, is that there's more UFO sightings per capita in Seattle than anywhere else home to the Space Needle. But it's generally cloudy most of the time. So what are we seeing? It's like, it seems like their opportunity would be the least. Maybe something is going on over there. And then you just write down, you know, a little bit south of there, you've got more billionaires per capita than anywhere. So maybe they've got like some, some private, uh, I don't know, experiments, planes, whatever. This is kind of turning into like some or <laughs> superhero, uh, supervillain type stuff. But I'm just saying that's that's allegedly the facts. More UFO sightings per capita. Don't even get me started on Sasquatch. You know, my dad had me terrified of Sasquatch as a child. What do you mean you still are? I, I am not. And here's, and I'll tell you why. There's like believing in something uh, because you want to. And then there's knowing something is not real because it isn't. Okay. Um, and that's just what the situation has to be. <laughs> Just based on like the amount of time I've spent in the woods doing things, whatever. While some things do go unexplained, like for example, the bobcat that like screamed at you and now, well, that was explained. We knew it was a bobcat, for example. But <laughs> things that happen and you're like, ooh, I wonder what that was. I can promise you it wasn't a Sasquatch. Okay. Because an eight foot tall giant ape with as many people as there are living in the world. And I know these are some, there are some remote areas out there, but there's darn near been a person just about everywhere now. And you've never seen a carcass. Uh, there's never been a fossil. There's no record. It's the video, the, you know, all that famous, the Patterson film where he's like walking along and then there's like the turn back. That's been proven to be a hoax. Allegedly. I don't know what you believe. I, people just want something to believe in. In uh, Skamania County, I believe it's Skamania County, uh, Washington, it is illegal to harvest or harvest, geez, harass and or kill a Bigfoot. So they do have it on the books, like as a just in case. All right. What I think what I assume is happening a lot, um, black bears, which are pretty prevalent in most areas of the U.S. and all that, big black creature generally, and they do have the ability to stand on their hind legs. I'm not saying they do that all the time, but for somebody who doesn't see a lot of bears, you could see something, it's dark out or it's getting dark and you see it like moving along real fast because they can run, like they're hauling. You might say, hmm, maybe that was a Bigfoot. You know what? If if we have somebody who has a uh, a Bigfoot story or some proof right into the podcast, we'll get you. We'll get you on the podcast. We'll do one of them Zoomy deals and we can talk about it. But as of now, in my life, having spent a lot of it in the woods, I'm not a believer in Bigfoot. Oh, this <laughs> some of the question stretch has really taken some wild turns. I think it was at 4 p.m. call that I had. I'm going to blame it on that. That's fair. That's interesting about the UFO thing. I would have never guessed that, but maybe because it's cloudy, they can't tell exactly what it is. And maybe it's just like a plane or something, but they're like, Oh, 
UFO. It's got to be. And, and now, back, back to, to the, the trivia. trivia. Question seven. True or false? At one time, it was illegal to buy a mattress, meat, or a television on a Sunday in Seattle. And the answer is true, to the best of my research ability. While there are some claims that these laws remain to this day, I couldn't find any sources of city ordinances to support these claims. So why would it ever have been illegal to buy material items or food on Sundays? The answer is the blue laws of the 1900s. In 1909, Washington State passed the Sabbath Breaking Law, which prohibited most businesses from operating on Sundays. These laws would commonly be referred to as blue laws and were largely adopted thanks to religious motivations. While I'm all for everyone taking some much-needed time off to use as they see fit, it seems like a terrible business model to be closed one of the days a week when most people probably aren't working. In November of 1966, voters elected to adopt Initiative 229, which would repeal many of the blue laws set nearly 60 years before. Question 8. There's a pretty famous brick wall under Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle. Okay, there's a lot of famous walls, but this one definitely stands out for its rather odd display. Which of the following items covers a 50-foot section of a wall in Market Theater? Is it A, love letters, B, chewing gum, C, dollar bills, or D, postcards? And the answer is chewing gum. Pretty gross, right? In some areas, the gum is several inches thick. Now, I've unfortunately touched my fair share of gum stuck under seats, but how does an entire wall get covered without being cleaned up? Initially, the wall was cleaned. In 1991, patrons of Unexpected Productions would cover the wall with used gum, complete with a penny pushed into them. The Pike Place Market Preservation and Development Authority would have the wall cleaned several times, but eventually, market officials deemed the wall a tourist attraction, protecting it, for better or worse, for the foreseeable future. Question 9. Which of the following do Seattleites buy more of per capita than any other city in America? A. Sunglasses B. Galoshes C. Umbrellas or D. Salmon And the answer is A, 
sunglasses. Wait, what? I thought Seattle was the dreariest and rainiest, most depressing place to live in all of the United States. Here are the facts. Seattle gets less rainfall each year than places like Houston, New York, Atlanta, and Boston. They do tend to have more gray and slightly dreary days than others, but unlike the popular rumor, it isn't the rainiest city in the country. The average accumulation of rain is only about 38 inches. Question 10. What Seattle sports legend quite literally produced a quake that registered on a seismograph after the crowd went wild in excitement? And the answer is Marshawn Lynch on the play now known as the Beastquake. After winning a terrible division, the Seattle Seahawks would take on the defending champion, New Orleans Saints, in the playoffs. No one really expected much from the game, but what they got was one of the most impressive plays in NFL history. Lynch took a handoff up the middle and proceeded to break the tackle of what felt like every opposing defender in epic fashion. Poor Tracy Porter was on the receiving end of one of the coldest stiff arms to grace a gridiron before Lynch jumped backward into the end zone. The play would prove pivotal as the Seahawks won by just five points. In the event of a tie, or if you're looking to earn a little extra credit, here's today's bonus question. The Seattle Sound. At the time, there wasn't anything like this musical style, the grunge. Name three grunge rock bands that first started in Seattle. And the answers are Green River, Melvin's, Tad, Mother Love Bone, Temple of the Dog, Mud Honey, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and of course, Nirvana. Many other smaller bands could also make the list, and I must admit, I dabble in the music genre at best. So if you came up with others and you're currently yelling at me for missing them, go ahead and give yourself a point. Alright folks, that brings us to the end of another episode of Travel and Trivia. We hope you enjoyed testing your knowledge and maybe even pick some up along the way. If you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to leave us a review. That would be much appreciated. If you would like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode, check the references linked in the show notes. Maybe you're delighted, maybe you're a little bit sad, but you'll have to live without us next week. However, we cannot wait to share with you all our wonderful adventures that we have in California. As always, we at Malcolm Media wish you well on your next adventure. You'll only ever regret the trips you don't take. <laughs>